various people, but we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. So pray for us in that. But we've done, uh, if you don't remember, we did four weeks. A few weeks back, we stopped before Easter. We did four weeks on the story of the Bible, right? And now we're in the second week uh, of a four-part series uh, called The Missing Half. And if you need to review or if you didn't hear those, you can go back and listen to those sermons on, online on, on the YouTube page or the Facebook page or whatever. And uh, today we're going to focus on God's love for internationals, all right? Internationals that he has brought among us, right? Uh, and if you think that there's none, then you're not being very aware. Um, I, 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 uh, I sat with somebody this week from Conestoga High School, which was my alma mater, and, and they said that uh, anywhere from 30 to 50% of the high school, it feels like is international now. It's just people that have moved in from other countries and, and different places like that. That's, that's amazing to me because we were, you know, lily white. We were just, just waspy at, at, at Conestoga for the whole time that I was there. So it's a changing, uh, changing thing, and that's wonderful. That's a, that's a great thing. Um, so we're looking at the Bible as one book, right? Remember, not 66 independent, disconnected books, but one book with one introduction, one story, and one conclusion in it. And we remember the introduction. Uh, God creates linguistically different people groups uh, at the Tower of Babel. And then the story um, begins with the two-part uh, Abrahamic covenant found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, one of the most pivotal uh, passages in Scripture or whatever. And that includes God's desire to bless Abraham uh, you know, and his descendants. In, and we call that the top line of the, 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 the covenant promise. And then he has that second desire to have Abraham go and be a blessing to all the different people groups, all the different nations uh, of the earth. And that is what we're calling the bottom line. So we're blessed to be a blessing, you know, top line, bottom line, all the way through Scripture. And we see that God is unifying all these different diverse people groups, not erasing their diversity, but God really loves that diversity, right? And he's unifying all these different diverse people groups uh, under himself for his ultimate glory and our ultimate joy, right? At the end of days, when we stand there and we are there with, you know, all the bajillion different people groups singing and, you know, in all the different, you know, garb and wonderful, you know, differences in them, it, that is going to be an absolutely joyous moment. And I, and I think that, and I know that will happen, actually. Uh, but we said last week that most Christians only read half their Bibles, right? That they, they focus, focus solely on God's desire to bless them. They neglect God's desire to have us go and bless the nations. We realize that what we've learned growing up in church sometimes isn't incorrect, or isn't, uh, yeah, is, it, it's, it's not incorrect, it's, but it's sometimes incomplete, right? Um, it's just not the whole story. So in missing the bottom line, we don't see God's great love for other people groups and his desire for us to be reaching out to them, even right here in our local area among internationals that he's bringing around us, right? So uh, I, I know that you guys have all probably bought a car or you bought something, right? And when you go to buy something like a car, you start to see that car everywhere, right? Isn't that the weird psychological phenomenon of it, Right? And um, right now I'm seeing motorcycles everywhere because I've got motorcycle brain right now. But, um, but you start to see that thing everywhere. 
you know, you think about all the different internationals that you see daily, right? You know, the Indonesians at the farmer's market. I don't know if you know, at the fish stall of the farmer's market, they're all Indonesians working there. I get to go in there and practice my language all the time with them. The guys that clean there are all Indonesian guys. Um, the Arabs walking their kids in the park, you know, from wherever they're from, you know, from Lebanon or Pakistan or whatever. Uh, Guatemalans in a restaurant, right? You know, sitting next to you, eating in a restaurant or whatever. And today we're going to see how God looked out for the foreigner, the international as we call them right now. But in, in the Old Testament, how God looked out for the foreigner, both theologically and practically, how God treated all nations equally, right? So let's begin from a theological perspective. In light of uh, the offerings, if you remember, to be given to the Lord, we read these, these words in Numbers 15, 15. It says, the community is to have the same rules for you and the foreigner residing among you. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You and the foreigner shall be the same before the Lord. You note those last words? You and, you know... You and the foreigner shall be the same before the Lord. This is a place where the top line is clearly, you know, equals the bottom line, right? God is very clear that he loves Israelites and foreigners equally, you know? And so we also read these words in Exodus chapter 12. It says, a foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised, and then he may take part like one born in the land. Right? Just like an Israelite. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native-born and the foreigner residing among you. So God is extremely clear with Israel that the foreigner living among them had every right to celebrate and participate in Passover, ending with this statement that he treats Israelites and internationals or foreigners the same. In light of murder, right? The, you know, what, what happens when there's a murder? We read in Le, uh, Leviticus chapter 24, it says, Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native-born. I am the Lord your God, right? So you, you know that you're really, truly equal in a crowd of people when you're held to the very same standards that they are, Right? Uh, God truly loves everybody equally. Even in punishment, we are equal with with others. Now that we've seen God give uh, give these sort of like theological community rules, which apply to both Jew and Gentile, or Jew and foreigner, let's look at the practical aspect of how God treated them, right? And we'll see this uh, very much so in in the phrase, then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know I'm the Lord. You hear that all throughout the Old Testament, don't you? God did uh, many things in Israel's history uh, to get their attention and to drive this truth home. And as in the context of First Kings chapter 20, verse 13, where the king of Israel is being sort of attacked by 33 other kings and all of their armies. So one king, one army against 33 kings and armies, right? And it doesn't look good, and Israel's outnumbered, and all that kind of stuff. But a prophet comes to King Ahab, who was Israel's king, and he said, this is what the Lord says, do you see this vast army before you, right? 
I will give it to your hand, into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Right? Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so those words, and then, those two little words, says that there's a meaning clause coming behind it or following it, right? And God wants them to know that He is the Lord, that He can deliver, that He will deliver, right? That He wants their attention on Himself and not on the problems out in front of them. And He wants them to worship Him. He wants them to rest in Him, right? Just like we sung, getting rid of fear, living living in, in faith. But this phrase... Then you will know that I am the Lord. Also, I think, in you, if you look at that passage, applies to the other nations as well, right? Because God is going to show those other nations that He is the actual true Lord of life, right? They're going to see that as well. And then if you remember, we looked at the ten plagues last week, right? If you, if you think about right in the middle of the ten plagues, God lets it be known that part of the reason for bringing his people up and out of uh, Egypt with all these mighty acts and wonders was also for the Egyptians' sake, right? It says, look at uh, Exodus 7, 4 and 5. It says, then I will lay my hand on Egypt... And with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions. My people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. He's just saying it over and over again. You know, last week we saw how the Israelites went out, and it said in that passage, with many other people. It wasn't just the Israelites that that exited out of Egypt, but it was many other people that went with them. And we know that those other people were actual Egyptians, right? That they were, there was a whole lot of them apparently as well. Because God loves the Egyptians at that time just as much as he loved the, the Israelites, right? And, and if you count up the numbers, there, there could have been more than 2 million people leaving Egypt at that time. I think it said that there was 600,000 men. That doesn't count women and children. You know, you just saw a family of four children. There could have been a whole lot of people leaving uh, Egypt at that time. And the wording, uh, Dave Christie pointed out to me last week, that the wording in there is, is, is it's kind of like a swarm of bees, right, leaving Egypt at that time. So it was a great sort of testimony to, to the God of the universe, right? Ezekiel 25, verses 1 through 5, God is reaching out to the Ammonites in sort of the same way. Listen to the first five verses. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to them, Hear the word of the Sovereign Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, because you said, Aha, over my sanctuary when it was desecrated, and over the land of Israel when it was laid waste, and over the people of Judah when when they went into exile. Therefore, I am going to give you to the people of the east as a possession. So apparently they're like, aha! You know, a little, little prideful arrogance in their part. And so it continues, he says, they will set up their camps and pitch their tents among you. They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. I will turn Rabbah into a pasture for camels and Ammon into a resting place for sheep. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Right? hear it over and over again and we understand that although god was judging them for their actions right he's reaching out to them at the same time he's making himself known again because god loved the ammonites just as much as he loved the israelites he treats them equally right 
So he reached out to the Moabites, the, the Edomites, the Philistines, in Ezekiel uh, 25, the people of Tyre in chapter 26, chapter 28, the Sidonites, and chapter 29, the Egyptians. God is just making himself known to all these nations, right? He was constantly reaching out to these other peoples um, over time. So we, 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 we can look at it theologically and practically. Uh, God made it very clear he was reaching not only Israelites, but all other nations as well, which is the, the greatest reason why he blesses us. He blesses us not only for our sake, but so that we can pour that blessing out to others. And we see that not just in the Old Testament, but we also see it in the New Testament, right? You know, uh, not, not only does God reach out in his own supernatural way to reach these nations, but he wants, he wants to work through us to reach them, right? He wants to use us to reach them. And he has two strategies. One was that he would let the nations come to Israel. You remember that where they were placed, they were right on those trade routes and all these different nations of the world just came right through Jerusalem, right through Israel all the time. So they had this contact with people all the time. And the other was that he would cause Israel to grow and to spread out over the earth, right? Remember he says there would be like the dust and the, and the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore and they would, they would just you know, kind of go out all over the place. But we're going to focus in, uh, on that and emphasize that first strategy today, how God is bringing uh, internationals to live among us, like Conestoga High School, just a, a growing population of internationals among us, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, we, and we find this clearly through the bottom line lesson of Solomon and his riches. Right, Solomon and his riches. God blessed Solomon greatly, if you remember in the scriptures, uh, just the story of his life. And if you have this sort of top line is greater than the bottom line kind of perspective, you look at his life and you say, well, I learned from his life that God wants to bless me as he blessed Solomon. Maybe not with you know all that he had, but he wants to bless me. And that is true and real. I think God does want to bless us. That, and that is top line. There's nothing wrong with that. That is not incorrect. But it is incomplete if that's the only thing we draw from his life. And we find the bottom line lesson of Solomon's riches in 1 Kings chapter 10. It says, King Solomon's greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. And listen to this. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. So here we have Solomon literally probably holding international wisdom seminars, right? Kings and queens from all over the world came all from everywhere around to hear the wisdom that God had imparted to Solomon, right? He was probably teaching from the book of Proverbs, which was sort of generic, you know, without really mentioning directly the, the God of Israel. It was all about wisdom, but he taught from the very beginning, right, that the, 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 the beginning of wisdom is to fear God, is to respect God, to, to, to latch on to his authority and be okay with it, right? So Solomon, was his whole life was a witness to kings and queens of all these other nations. The bottom line lesson of that, that God might be blessing us in order to attract other people to us. I don't know if you you know, I think everybody in the world, in America, should go live in a third world country for at least one year. 
You do not understand how much you have here. It's insanely, it's insane how much you have. The bottom line application of that is that God blessed us with tremendous insights and wealth and internationals come from all over the world to study here, to live here, right? And God is saying, wake up, American church, right? Begin to reach out to those that I have brought you. Begin to extend your hand to them. Begin to witness to them, right? God wants us to reach international students studying in the United States. I believe that. Have them over for Thanksgiving dinner. Have them over for Christmas. Christmas. Be in relationship with them. Invite them someplace. You know, whenever you run into them, do something, Right? To simply engage in easy ways of showing them love. I was talking to Kathleen the other day, and we were talking about how one little act of kindness just sticks in people's hearts, doesn't it? Like a card, you get a card, a thank you card in the in the mail. It means something to you, right? Oftentimes, people move to this country, and not, none of us ever really talk to them, right? We met with a guy this week who's doing ministry among internationals in the city. Just wonderful stuff. All these stories he's talking about, how he reaches out to people. There's, there's just a ton of Banglas in Philadelphia right now. There's a ton of Saudis in Philadelphia right now. There's a ton of a, just a million different people groups all coming through our city and all coming through our neighborhoods, and oftentimes we don't even acknowledge that. If you're only reading half your Bible focused only on the top line, you, you, you'll miss God's emphasis on this in the Old Testament, right? And I, as I said, it's not only in the Old Testament that we see God's heart for internationals. Jesus also makes it very clear that internationals are a priority on God's heart. But if you're focused on only the top line of the Abrahamic covenant, you'll easily miss it, right? In the beginning of the New Testament, In Matthew's Gospel, if you've ever read that, the genealogy of Christ is very interesting. And there are five women mentioned in that that genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife. Who was that? Uriah's wife? Bathsheba, yeah. And Mary, right? Five women. And outside of Mary, the mother of Jesus, they were all Gentile women. They were all foreigners. They weren't Jewish. Right? And God is communicating through this that people of other nations have an equal place, a close place in his heart. You've got to read these details. You have to think about these things. Judaism didn't give women a high status at all. But God puts these Gentile women right in the lineage of his own son. What does that say to us, right? He is saying he loves all people equally. We also see these in, uh, see this in the actions of Jesus when the ten lepers were healed. You remember that story? Only one of them came back to thank Jesus. I wonder who that was, right? Well, let's look at it in Luke 17. It says, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met, met him. And they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Right? So ten guys with leprosy. Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they, you know, they got up and they started walking. And as they went, they were cleansed. They didn't have leprosy anymore, in other words. And one of them, 
you know, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. So the guy's walking along. He's like, oh my gosh, I don't have leprosy anymore. And he turns around and goes back to Jesus, right? And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him and he was a Samaritan, right? And Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Now, why did this even make it into the story, right? If you look up commentaries, right, that you find interesting insights, obviously, but they all seek to give this answer as to why this guy came back. And most just claim it was because of his faith, as it obviously it's written there. And although we would agree with that, he came back, his, his faith was great, it's not the main point of the story at all. It's, it's not incorrect, but it is incomplete. And they're missing the bottom line of the story, right? This guy is highlighted because he was a Samaritan. That's exactly why he was highlighted. Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile blood mixed together, and that was horrible to a Jew. Straight Gentile blood would, would have been easier for them to accept, for a Jew to accept, but a mixture would have been absolutely detestable to them. Right? Why not a Jewish man coming back and thanking God? Why is the Samaritan highlighted? Right? And that's, this struck at the heart of, of the Jews that were listening to Jesus, cutting deeply into their strong, their, their strong sort of top-line bias, communicating a few things to them. One is that God loves Samaritans to, enough to heal them, right? Secondly, that Samaritans could have faith in God. Thirdly, too, that, 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 uh, they, that they too could praise God and he would receive it from them. And Jesus is elevating this Samaritan's position before God, or all Samaritan's positions before God, shaking the Jews up who thought that the Messiah was only for them. They, he was teaching them a lesson. But some Bible expositors, they miss this, right? Because they're living out of this top line is greater than bottom line faith, and text like that go, just goes unnoticed. Most Christians today don't think twice about the fact that Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus or, or secular folks, uh, people of non-Christian sort of people groups, can come to know the Lord. We know that. I mean, that's not an aha moment for us right now. But we simply, you know, in, in our own daily practice, we simply walk by them without even saying a prayer for them. Or even thinking that God loves them and God wants to reach them, let alone through our words and our actions. And as Jesus emphasized loving people from other nations, some people were absolutely furious because they only wanted God for themselves, right? Let's look at one of those instances, Luke chapter 4. Uh, Jesus says, truly I tell you, he continued, no, pro no prophet is accepted in his hometown, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout, famine throughout the land. Verse 26, Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, 
the prophet. Two different guys, Elijah and Elisha. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Right? So note, the widow and Naaman are both Gentiles. They are both Gentiles. Jesus is talking about how Elijah was taken care of by a, by a, a Gentile widow, although there were plenty of Jewish ones around there. And how Elisha was uh, only cleansed one leper, right? A Gentile guy, name of the Syrian, right? Though there were plenty of Jewish ones. And what was the result of Jesus saying this? All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and they drove him out of town. (laughs) See, people don't like to have their self-serving theology challenged. And with, with Jesus openly declaring right there that the Messiah and God's love were available to all Gentiles as well as Jews, he totally upset the apple cart. He had a habit of doing that, didn't he? So are some people these days furious when others, possibly people from other nations, come into our churches? They are sometimes. I have those conversations with people. I have back at Church of the Savior when I was there, and I've had them here. Not so much here. You guys are pretty good people. Um, All those Church of the Savior people. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But what would happen, happen, really, honestly, if a Saudi Muslim wearing a shemag, or a kafiyeh, if I say it correctly, and a thawb, which is the big robe, walked into church on a Sunday morning. What would happen? How would you feel? How would you react? How would we react if a homeless man or a homeless woman who stunk, reeked of alcohol and urine came in here and, you know, wanted to hug your kid, (laughs) sit next to you for church? Now, we would like to say, and I think we are a fairly accepting church, right? But some of us have to admit that we would have great concern. Politically, there's some political issues going on. There's all these different things. You know, although we may have some problems with the idea of reaching out to those different from us, Jesus repeatedly made it clear that internationals are an absolute priority. Other nations, other people groups, other ethnic groups are an absolute priority. It's not just, oh, I'll reach the guy next to me that looks like me, talks like me, smells like me, you know, all that stuff. We are to be reaching out to all the nations. And we see this in John chapter 10, where we read uh, about the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I, have, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now it's not as simple as that guy is not a Christian and he needs to be in the pen. It's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. A clear, it's a clear statement of unity in diversity under Christ. The pen is Israel. It's being in God's presence. They were in God's presence. And the pen is Israel and the other sheep are all the Gentile nations around them. In the world. Jesus always meant to bring Gentile together with Jew. 
His plan from the very beginning with Abraham. It started way back then. And as he says, they too will listen to my voice, he means that they are able to hear God's voice and respond to God just like all you Jewish folks. Right? So when you go shopping, or you go out to eat, or you go to get gas, or you see people from another ethnic group either behind the counter or shopping next to you or eating next to you, what do you think Jesus wants you to think about those people? Could it be that they are actually, something's going on in their life, that they are actually hearing God's voice in their life at that moment, that God is present, that He's working in their lives as well, and that every moment is a divine moment. Every moment. God may be speaking to them, and they may not know who to talk to about it. They may not have, they may need you to interpret the whole situation. According to its words, it, his words, Jesus' responsibility is to bring them to the Father, but he works through us to do so, doesn't he? So what might God want us to do when we see somebody else from another ethnic group or people group or nation, right? Well, maybe we should go to them. Maybe we should begin a relationship. Maybe we should get over being uncomfortable. I have a Vietnamese friend in, in Vietnam. His family, were, uh, they were Buddhist. And his father was an extremely successful uh, uh, restaurant owner. One of the biggest, most successful restaurants in, in Vietnam. And when war broke out way back when, uh, his father sold all of his assets. He gave away all of his wealth to his employees so that they would have something. And he kept just enough to get his whole family to America. And once he was here, his father struggled along working menial jobs to support his family. And, you know, it's true that many foreign workers are highly educated, successful people back at home, but they come to America due to some hardship and they, and they have to restart. Remember the, what was it, the, the Jewish surgeon, or not Jewish, uh, the J- Japanese surgeon from the, the, the office? Yeah. I had steady hand. You know, he's always a great guy. That was a really that was a good one. Anyway, but uh, so the father they they move over here, and the father met some Christians who cared for him, uh, cared for his family. They housed them. They provided for them. This is a whole church that just got behind this family. They were not Christians. They were Buddhists, but this whole church got behind them and shared and they shared the gospel with them. And as a result, they gave their lives to Christ, and they are they are just very strong active christians to this day the the the, my friend um owns a bunch of very popular restaurants i'm not sure if i should say but but he uh but he gives away a ton of money to ministry he does a lot of ministry himself god's heart is big for people of other nations He, he he you know he devoted an entire parable of a wedding banquet to describe it Look at Matthew chapter 22. He says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son and he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet and tell them to come, but they refused to come, right? So the king obviously represents God. The son is representative of Jesus and those who had been invited represented all the Jews, right? And it continues, then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. Uh, My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding bank. This is a big party. 
right? A big party. So the servants represent all the prophets throughout the history of Israel that God sent that, 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 that consistently reminded Israel of, of, of God's desires, God's law, God's you know, movement and history and all that stuff and how they're to be a part of it, right? But they paid no attention, it says, and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized the servants, mistreated them, and and the king was enraged. So what did he do? He sent his army and destroyed those murderers, and he burned the city. Indignant, indifferent, concerned with only their own busy lives. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Really does. It continues... Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the wedding banquet anyone you find. So when he speaks of those on the street corners and anyone you find, he's speaking of all the other nations, all the other people groups around Israel. And we've seen in past sermons that the Jews are chosen, you know, back in the Old Testament, they are the chosen people of God, not because they were loved more, they were more special than anybody else, but because God gave them a special purpose to be blessed, to go out and bless the nations, to go out and reach all these other nations with the glory of God. So he's communicating that the Jewish nation, God's chosen people, are going to be passed over if they are not a part of that plan. He's looking to the Gentiles to also be to to be wed to his son, right? It says, so the servants went out in the streets. They gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. How do you think they felt as they heard that? These Jews were livid when they heard that. They hated Gentiles, right? How do some Christians today respond if we say that God loves terrorists or even Muslims as much as us? That we should embrace and not shun them. Some of you may even be conflicted with those feelings, right? Nowhere does Jesus bring it closer to home, by the way, than in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Which begins with an expert in the law as he's trying to test Jesus. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? And Jesus doesn't answer him directly. He kind of does that a lot. But he asks a question in return, and he says, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? How do you read it? Right? And the guy answers correctly. He says, well, one must love God, and he must love his neighbor. But then the expert seeks to justify himself, and he asks, well, who is my neighbor, really? You know, like, who's my neighbor? And at this point, Jesus tells a story about a man beaten by robbers in Luke chapter 10. And he says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Uh, a priest happened to be going by, going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side, so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, both priests and Levites were this sort of privileged uh, religious leader class, right? 
And the Greek, gives, you know, the Greek sort of gives this idea that it was by chance that they're walking. You know, they happen to be going down this road and that, you know, maybe they're returning from service at the temple or going to it, whatever. But it was a good sign for the man beaten, right? Because surely a priest, a religious man would stop. He's spiritually close to God. He would stop. He would help him. But he didn't. He passes by on the other side. Same too with a Levite. Why did they pass by? Well, according to ceremonial law found in Leviticus, if a priest enters a place, even enters a place where there's a dead body, he would be uh, considered ceremonially unclean. And the process to seek purity afterwards is inconvenient. Being half dead, as it's described here, Jesus you know, says these guy's half dead, that meant that the man might not have been moving, and you know, so they didn't want to take any chances on being around a dead body, a corpse. On the other hand, right? On the other hand, there are plenty of Old Testament scriptures which speak of helping those in need. But they placed personal convenience over help of somebody in great need. And as a result, they made a mockery of God's law, and it was extremely, extremely selfish. Self-centered, right? Now today, in our church, I would say it's not religious rule-keeping which makes us like the priest and the Levite. It may be prejudice in some of us, but more likely it's busyness and schedules and kids, those pesky kids, tiredness, indifference. You know, just as Jesus was chiding the Jews listening to the story, he's also telling us not to let these things of life get in the way of helping others in need. Right? And finally, Jesus talks about the Samaritan in the story, right? He says, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan, oh, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now remember, Samaritans are half-breeds, which Jews hated, right? So what happens, right? The man had pity on him, you know, he, he goes to him, he bandages up his wounds, he pours, pours oil and wine on them, sounds kind of disgusting, but it, it, it had a purpose, and he, then he puts the man on his own donkey, right, and he takes him to an inn and he pays for all of his care, right? So it cost him time, it delayed his schedule, he bandaged the man, oil and wine, act as a, uh, a disinfectant, right? He was willing to get his hands dirty, literally hands on to show kindness to this guy that he doesn't know on the road. It cost him financially, he, it was out of pocket expenses, right? And he's helping people, you know, it, it just we see this, that helping people means you'll have to spend your own time, your own money, you know, to drive, to pay for supplies, to buy food or, uh, you know, school supplies for underprivileged people, right? It means a sacrifice. He also put the man on his own donkey, like us being willing to drive somebody someplace who needs a ride. International students, the homeless, or an elderly couple that needs to get to the doctor. Should we be doing stuff like this today? Of course we should. Look at how Jesus concludes. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. What was Jesus telling his listeners 
then and now. That God's mercy needs to be a higher priority than our personal self-serving agendas, especially to those different than us. Because it speaks of God's heart. God loves all the internationals around us. And I'm not making political statements, by the way. This is theology. This is what we believe as Christians. Not political rants. That's not what I'm doing. But he loves the internationals all around us. In class, at the grocery store, on your block, at gas stations, wherever you might find them, right? So what is one practical thing that you can do this week to act on this message? Right? Maybe you can start praying for people that you see on the train every day. Or you may have even talked to them on the train. Maybe you can get to know somebody and invite them to dinner. Maybe you can ask the Holy Spirit to make you aware of all those internationals around you. Maybe you can start to pray for divine conversations to open up with them. Maybe you can take one of these little Bibles that we've purchased for you. They're free, and they're right over there. These little Bibles and the little cards, and you can actually start to train yourself on how to share the gospel with somebody. So that not only when it, when it happens by chance, but when you intentionally direct the conversation to Jesus, you're able to share the gospel. By the way, you have to believe all this stuff too to be able to do that. So if you have problems with that, come talk to me, for goodness sakes. Don't waste your life. Maybe you can write out your testimony and have a few solid Christians read through it and get you ready to share your testimony. By the way, your testimony should involve Scripture. It should involve sin. It should involve salvation, what, what salvation is from sin. It's not just about your, your fun story. It's about what God has done in your life and how Scripture and the, and, the, and the direction of Christ has convicted you, right? Maybe you could pray every day during this month of Ramadan. I don't know if you know, Ramadan started, I think, on the 13th. And this is a huge uh, religious month for Muslims. Maybe you could start praying for Muslims all around you uh, every day of Ramadan that they would find Jesus. Do you know that more th- that more Muslims have come to faith in the past 30 years than all of 1,360 years before? Why is that? It's because modern missions started about 150, 200 years ago, right? Is that right? We weren't always sending missionaries out. We weren't always going to the nations. It's a, this is a recent phenomenon that we go out to the nations. There's probably technology makes a difference and everything else too. But we have started to go out. Back in like the 1800s, we started going out. Um, maybe we can start to make room in our lives, in our schedules, in our homes for them. I think one of the greatest things... Kim and I, decisions we've ever made is to have international students as boarders in our house. It's, it's wonderful. I love it. I love it. Love it. And I say it quite a bit. But God will be a result, uh, be glorified as a result of our good decisions in these ways. And I think you'll find that life is so much more exciting and interesting than just pursuing your, your 
American dream. How boring. Live in risk, man. God bless you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you for this story. We thank you for history. His story. Your story. We thank you for what you're doing. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified in our lives, in our choices, in what we do with our money, in our time, in our talent, in everything. That you would draw us out of ourselves, out of our selfishness, out of our myopic views of life, and you would let us see that, man, this is just a blip on the screen. We're thinking about eternity. We're thinking about the eternal life of people that we're walking around every day and we never bother to share. Father, open the door for us. Let us walk through it. Let us do it well. Convict our hearts. Make this a joyous experience. Give us a desire to do what you would have us do. We know we don't do anything without desire. So we pray that you would make us desirous of what you want in this world, where you're going in this world. Amen. I think we're done.